Mina Montessario gazes upon power personified. A bitter wind driving a blizzard of swirling snow spins in an ever-quickening vortex around the clan leader, lifting her from the ground. She rises, her arms spread wide. Her expression is one of terrible fury, but there's a strange, exultant joy there too. Her guards, clearly familiar with the consequences of such moods, turn and bolt from the room, leaving Mina on her knees, alone and defenceless. She clambers to her feet, leaning into the wind to stay upright, arms held protectively, her hair whipping around her face. She feels frozen to the core. All right, she yells over the rising howl of the gale. All right, I'll do it. There's a flicker of response in the old woman's eyes and a fractional lull in the wintry onslaught. I'll do as you ask. I'll turn off the great machine. Hello and welcome to The Lone Adventurer, an actual play solo RPG podcast with me, Carl White. I will be your narrator, your game master and your guide as we follow our hero, Mina Montessario, on her journey into the unknown. For this game, I will be using the D&D 5th edition ruleset, as well as a variety of other systems, tools and tables as they take my fancy. A word of warning. The following scenes may contain mature themes and disturbing imagery. Listener discretion is advised. The adventure continues. Last time on The Lone Adventurer, Mina and Cadmus found themselves at the mercy of Uma Jukti, leader of the Pipe Runners. Mina learned of Jukti's terrible plan to bring the city to its knees and inadvertently incurred her wrath. In so doing, she also learned Jukti's true identity. Is he gone? Cadmus peers through the bars of the tiny window in the door of the small cell, a welded and bolted cube of sheet metal. I believe so, Mina. Your mechanical distraction appears to have had the desired effect. Good. I'll need to work fast. Fast doesn't do her justice. Her fingers are an industrious blur as she works the small fragments of scavenged brass and steel into intricate, interlocking shapes. Cadmus knows better than to ask what she's building. He doubts he would understand the answer if she told him. Instead, he asks, What did you say Jukti called herself? Mina doesn't look up from her work. Grand Duchess Jactinia Orlanthi Tereth, which, if not impossible, is very, very unlikely. Although he has little knowledge of Kyra's high society, Cadmus has not heard the name before. Unlikely? Why? Well, mainly because she's dead. Or at least she should be. She was exiled from Kyrus around a hundred years ago from leading an armed insurrection that almost resulted in the Dominar's death. And, if I remember my history rightly, she was no spring chicken at the time. In fact, she was probably about as old as Jukti is now. So either she's delusional, or she's immortal. Mina has fashioned a sort of fine exoskeletal glove, which she slips over her right hand. 
tiny cogs and pistons hum and whir as she wiggles her fingers experimentally. Complex, geometric patterns of purple light appear over her hand. She nods in satisfaction and uses the contraption to set to work on a fresh mechanism. I'm making progress. I just wish I knew what they'd done with Barbican. Having him here would make this a lot easier. Is the guard still away from his post? Yes, you have a little time yet, I think, Cadmus says. I suppose it's not really important if she truly is this Grand Duchess. She certainly seems to think she is. This plan of hers, do you really think it might work? Mina looks grim, but her fingers do not slow. I hate to say it, but it's actually kind of brilliant. Deranged and psychotic, but brilliant. I think we'll have to assume she is capable of doing what she claims, which means we need a plan to stop her. Cadmus glances back at her from the door. And you have one? Working on it. Mina finishes tracing a set of glowing runes into the hexagonal faces of a half-rusted nut and tosses it to Cadmus. He peers at it, and the runes fade away. And then she takes another and repeats the process. Keep that safe and hidden. Should we get separated and need to communicate, either of us can just take hold of one of these, think of the other, and think a message. As long as we keep it short, the other will hear it, no matter where we are. I have a couple more devices to build, and then we'll be as prepared as we can be. I'm not going to lie, Cadmus. We're in deep, deep trouble here. But we may not be able to get out of it. But I do have some tricks, and one ace in the hole. I've no idea if this is going to work, or if it's going to get us both killed. But it's the best we've got. Now, listen carefully. The last scene began as altered. I'd planned it to be the pair of them in a cell, and the most likely alteration I could think of was that the cell was closely guarded. But Mina, aided by Casmus and the guidance cantrip, absolutely nailed the stealth check, and so I ruled that Mina had the time and space she needed to fashion her tinker's tools, swap out a couple of spells, and create a pair of sending stones. It was quite a bit of fun trying to optimise Mina's spell loadout. Anticipating what might be coming next and figuring out which spells from the Artificer list might be the most useful in the coming scenes. Time will tell whether I've chosen wisely or poorly. It was also a fun exercise trying to come up with a plan that might extricate the pair from this god-awful mess and throw a spanner in Chukti's works. The one I came up with was satisfying, leaning into a few pre-established aspects of the story. But, as Mina says, there's absolutely no guarantee it's going to work. It may just make things a lot, lot worse. We'll have to wait and see. By which, of course, I mean that I won't be sharing that plan just yet. I'm guessing it'll be a far more satisfying listener experience to hear things play out rather than knowing what's coming. That's me being altruistic and generous, rather than mean and stingy in my willful withholding of information from my partners on this journey. At least, that's what I'm going with. Before we move on to the next scene, a quick mea culpa. I wax lyrical about the virtues of the mending cantrip back in chapter 11, gushing about how it could heal Barbican both in and out of combat and effectively turn him into an almighty damage sponge. And then I reread the spell, specifically the casting time. Not one action, one minute. A whole minute. Not castable in combat, then. Barbican has gone from a tank to tissue paper. 
Well, okay, that's an exaggeration, but he's definitely a lot less durable now. And Mina may well find it a lot harder to keep him functioning throughout a combat from now on. Assuming the pipe runners give him back, of course. Things went pretty well for Mina there, so chaos goes down to seven. It feels like everything hinges on this next scene. Let's see where it takes us. I prefer to have the healer somewhere I know I can find him, should you prove uncooperative, Jukti replies. Mina has successfully petitioned to have Barbican accompany them on this trek into the tunnels, but Jukti has held firm on Cadmus. It is a timely reminder that, in spite of her apparent softening, even friendliness since Mina agreed to her plan, their relationship is very much one of coercion. They travel alone. Mina has been doubly surprised both at Jukti's willingness to travel without guards and at the old woman's unexpected sprightliness. She moves far more comfortably and quickly than any woman of her apparent age has any right to. Jukti clearly notices Mina's reaction, because she smiles and says, Where we are going, my people are not permitted. The Hall of the Great Machine is the exclusive territory of the cult. A conceit I am prepared to accommodate for now at least. But have no fear, I am more than capable of looking after myself. The implied threat is not lost on Mina. They stop once along the way at a hidden equipment cache where Mina is provided with all manner of tools. She loads up Barbican, they set off again. She feels the machine long before she sees it. She has felt vibrations in the tunnels before, evidence of the arcane power flowing through this place, but this is on another level. There is such power evident here. She can feel it not only with her physical senses, but with her arcane sensitivity. The very air vibrates with potential energy, and it grows in intensity the closer they get. And yet none of that can prepare her for the hall itself. The scale is the first thing to assault her senses, as she looks out over a chamber so vast, at first it simply doesn't make sense. Her mind scrambles to catch up, to find some frame of reference for what her eyes are trying to tell her. But it is the machine itself that truly takes her breath away, that makes her doubt her own sanity. Everything she has seen in the underpipes to this point has been mere foreshadowing, a hint of the true mastery of the Elder Engineers. This colossal contrivance, this incomprehensible feat of engineering is beyond anything from Mina's wildest dreams. And when it comes to engineering, Mina can dream pretty wild. But this, this impossible, beautiful, monumental creation is so far beyond what she had thought possible, it leaves her utterly stunned. The sheer audacity to even conceive of something of this scale and complexity, let alone the ability to actually build it. Mina can practically see her worldview crumbling before her inner eye. Her every preconception about the limits of mortal ingenuity and industry are swept away in one transcendent moment. And there's something else, a nagging thought. It's been drifting, forming, just below the surface of the night sea of her subconscious mind. She is reminded of the genesis of that thought, first born as she wandered lost in the underpipes with Cadmus. 
have hidden the implications and impossible consequences of the scale of the pipes they were travelling, the underpipes simply seemed too big. Now she is faced with unequivocal proof. Her mind finally catches up, and some cool, distant part of her works the numbers. The best estimate, based on what she can see from the slender gantry, some two-thirds of the way up the central mass of the machine, the mind-bending tangle of machinery is perhaps two miles long, and at least a third of that wide and tall. Quite apart from the impossibility of anyone constructing something this vast, there is another conclusion that is perhaps equally unsettling. This space is far too large to possibly fit beneath the city. Enough gawking, Jupti scowls. You're as bad as those moon-eyed cultists. Come, we have work to do. She leads Mina and Barbican several hundred feet across the gantry to a small circular platform set in a walkway that extends around the machinery and off into the distance. They step on it and it begins to ascend, taking them up past several more walkways. Mina sees numerous machine cultists in their familiar masks, robes and metal adornments. Some are engaged in acts of devotion, their distorted voices raised in adulatory song, or their backs bent in prayer. She spots several, following what look like more advanced versions of the multi-limbed tunnel sweepers she encountered earlier, mechanical repair units, she guesses. The cultists, following in ones and twos, swing smoking brass censers, chanting strange liturgies. Jukti's look of contempt gives an indication of her opinion of these acts of worship, but she says nothing. There are so many of them, Mina says. Something surprising to her, but a surprise she can safely contemplate without worrying she might be losing her mind. Jukti shrugs, uninterested. Their numbers have grown over the years since the discovery of the machine. There is comfort to the gullible and credulous in such things. It is of no importance. They serve their purpose for now. Remember, you have a task to complete. You know what failure to complete it, or trouble of any sort, will mean for the healer. Focus on your allotted task, girl, if you wish to see him safe. The platform comes to a stop, and Mina finds herself on a wide, grated metal platform near the top of the edifice. Ahead of her, beyond a large gathering of cultists, stands a construction of brass and black metal. As they approach it, it reminds Mina of the cavernous machine room she saw on her travels through the pipes, a chamber filled with monolithic, dwarven-constructed apparatus whose purpose Mina could not begin to guess. Only this one is far, far larger. This woman is under my protection, Jukti calls out to the approaching cultists. She is a machinist capable of communing with the great machine. She will be granted free access to it, to study it, and to share the mysteries of the machine. The cultists look to one another, clearly unhappy at this decree, but Chukti evidently holds great sway over them. They stand aside, muttering in protest. They follow closely. Over the next several hours, Mina studies the machine's primary control chamber, pretending to have the faintest clue at what she's looking at. But in truth, she understands nothing. This artificing is unlike anything she has ever seen. And her mind is not really on her task. Another realisation has come to her as she slowly processes everything she has seen and heard. Shukti claimed that even without Mina, she would destroy this machine if she did not get her way. But how could anyone destroy a construction this vast? There's only one possible answer. 
Jukti must have huge stockpiles of infernal powder hidden away somewhere. As she pretends to work, she watches for her moment, and at last it comes. Jukti has moved away, deep in conversation with some cultist leader. There are fifteen or so cultists nearby, watching her suspiciously, and more a little distance away. With Jukti distracted, Mina seizes her moment. You're being lied to, you know, she says casually to the nearest cultist. By Jukti, I mean. She's just using you. She has no love for this machine. Science girl, you know nothing. The Uma has proven her loyalty to the cult of the machine. She is a firm ally. Together we will bring the word of the machine to the top science. You think? Mina asks. More cultists have approached, because that's not what she told me. She told me you're a bunch of useful idiots who are doing her dirty work for her until she doesn't need you anymore. And that when she's done with you, she'll kill you and destroy your precious machine. That's why she brought me here, to kill it. A real crowd has started to gather now. Sacrilege, lies and abomination. None shall harm the Greek machine. Your claims are baseless. Untruths! Out of the corner of her eye, Mina spots Jukti, alert to the commotion and with a face like thunder, approaching fast. This is it. No turning back now. Hand hidden in her pocket, she slips on the exoskeletal metal glove. Baseless, you say, she cries out, her voice carrying through the chamber and across the platform beyond. Well, let me offer you some proof of Jukti's betrayal. And with that, she holds up her hand, activates the small metal sphere within it, and the recorded voice of Uma Jukti rings out. The great machine will be destroyed, taking along with it the entire city of Kairos. Better mutual destruction than to live on as thralls, betrayed and forgotten by a city oblivious to our exploitation. There is a moment of stunned silence, in which everyone, including Jukti, freezes. Then, all machine cultist eyes turn to the pipe-runner leader, alone among their number. And as one, they cry, Betrayer! Well, so far so good. The first step of the plan actually seems to have worked. A seemingly very minor artifice of class feature picked up at level 1 has had a very significant impact on the course of events. We saw Mina use this magical tinkering feature in Chapter 1 when she used it to confuse her machine cultist pursuers with the sound of her own footsteps. Here, that short recording has had a simple mechanical effect. It allowed Mina to roll her persuasion check at advantage. And the result of that roll was a natural 20 on the dice. Auto-success. No other site has quite the power to warm the shriveled, calcified heart of an old role-player. There were a couple of curveballs that Mythic threw in to keep me on my toes on the way to that point. I'd hoped Cadmus would be present, as well as a bunch of pipe-runners, to ramp up the confusion factor if a fight did break out, all in all, those were pretty secondary considerations, and other than these niggles, things have gone pretty well so far. Of course, there's still a lot of steps to go, and things could still go very wrong at any of them. We'll see how long Mina's luck holds out. A quick run-through of the mythic questions and answers that shaped that scene. Mythic told me that Jukti and Barbican would accompany Mina to the machine, but that the pipe runners and Cadmus would not. I made a random Perilous Wilds dungeon roll for the journey to see if they went anywhere interesting or saw anything of note. A supply cache was all that came up. 
At the machine itself, Mythic told me there were lots of cultists, no pipe runners, and that the machine itself was exceptionally large. Impossibly so, in fact. The cultists did not resist her attempts to examine the machine, and she understood precisely nothing of the mechanism. That was it. All the rest was just joining the dots and playing the results through Mina's veil of perception. A random sidebar. The title of this episode, In the Hall of the Great Machine, reminded me of the title of King Crimson's uncanny masterpiece, In the Court of the Crimson King, arguably the most influential prog rock album ever released. In fact, my title was probably subconsciously inspired by it. Anyway, that dropped an earworm into my head that could not be ignored, and so the album became the audio backdrop for writing this episode. And a perfectly wired and trippy accompaniment it was too. Even more so when Spotify followed that up with Master of the Universe by Hawkwind, and then went into a meandering trip through the joyfully whacked-out stylings of King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. Good times. I'm taking the Chaos Factor down to six after that scene. Let's see where the chips fall. Jukti snarls in fury as the machine cultists close in, weapons drawn. I see you, girl, she cries. There will be no escape. None can stand before me, certainly not this pitiful rabble. You have simply sped up my timetable. Frost spreads rapidly out from her across the grated metal platform, and the advancing cultists are suddenly consumed in a shrieking blast of ice that erupts from Jukti's outstretched hands and freezes them solid. From somewhere, a wailing klaxon sounds, and then another. More machine cultists appear, scrambling up ladders and onto the platform. One of their number, an elder of their order, by his elaborate dress, cries out, We are betrayed, Brother Cox. The Omer has deceived us. She means to destroy the great machine. We were fools to store the infernal powder in the great hall. Let all spread the word. The Omer and her pipe brothers must be slain. The powder must be... His words are cut short by a spike of ice that shoots up from the platform at his feet. It punches up through his back and out his chest, freezing him solid and lifting him lifeless into the air. But his words spread like wildfire through the cultists. More and more arrive, swarming onto the platform in defence of their holy machine. You are merely delaying the inevitable, girl. Once I have dealt with these fools, you shall watch as your healer friend is peeled before your eyes. I... wait, where did you go? Jukti scans the encircling crowd of machine cultists, but Mina is nowhere to be seen. Neither, she realises, is her metal servant. Impossible, she shrieks. What trickery is this? I shall find you. I shall find you and destroy you utterly. But the cultists have other ideas. Cult elders swiftly organise their forces, completely surrounding Jukti in a wide ring and then sending their fanatical followers charging in. None get within ten paces of the old woman, but that is not their true purpose. Instead, in dying for their cause, they provide sufficient distraction for the elders to set up an encircling barrage of arcane fire. Flaring bright and trailing black smoke, missile after missile slams into the pipe-runner leader. Jukti's defences are strong, but even she cannot repel an attack from all sides at once. With a howl of frustration, she waves her arms, conjuring a swirling column of driving ice and snow that coats every surface in thick, treacherous ice and completely obscures the platform, pushing the cultists back. Her voice, charged with supernatural power, echoes over the roar of the wind. 
You have brought the endgame closer, girl. My forces will sweep this feeble mob aside and either bring the city to its knees or gut it. But this, I swear, between this moment and the final fall of Kairos, your inner shall endure pain unimaginable. And then the blinding blizzard dies, and the platform is empty, save for the shell-shocked remnants of the cult of the great machine, standing amidst their frozen dead. So, Mina and Barbican were in the heart of the enemy's stronghold, surrounded by a horde of hostile cultists and a demented Ice Queen intent on the total destruction of everything. Getting out of that pickle was going to be pretty darn difficult, right? Well, as it turned out, no. In fact, it was super easy, barely an inconvenience. Exactly how Mina pulled off that trick can wait for a little while, but first I wanted to provide a little glimpse behind the scenes on that last combat scene between Chukti and the cultists. Or rather, what looked like a combat scene. Let me explain. The simulationist in me saw the beginning of hostilities back there and, my, and started my fingers twitching to roll the initiative dice. Combat rounds, actions, bonus actions, spell slots and hit points. But the narrativist in me stayed my hand, and for good reason. D&D is a game that centres around the PCs. They are what matter most. Because of that, D&D shines brightest when dealing with small-scale combat. Combat set at the same scale as a typical adventuring party. It's not built for mass combat between huge hordes of combatants, and becomes very slow and clunky if you try to force it down that path. What we were looking at in the last scene was a large-scale combat that did not centre around the PCs. Instead, it was a conflict between two sets of NPCs, with the player characters acting on the periphery. This simplified matters immensely. No need to track the complexity of combat. Instead, I needed to track the outcome of each set of challenges in the most appropriate manner. The combat scene between Jukti and the cultists wasn't combat, it was window dressing. Because there were no PCs involved, we didn't need to zoom in to the level of D&D's conflict resolution mechanics. All we needed was to ask the DM what the outcome was. In this case, I asked Mythic whether Jukti was defeated, given the answer 50-50 odds, and Mythic said she was. To understand the nature of the defeat, I asked if she was killed and was told no, and then asked if she escaped and was told yes. Simple. To flavour the combat, I looked at the powers of the Ring of Winter, as well as the stat block I'd chosen for Jukti, a warlock of the Archfey from Volo's Guide to Monsters. Those gave me the spells and powers she could use in the battle to meet the outcomes that I'd already rolled. Same with the cultists. I looked at the cultist and cult fanatic stat blocks from the monster manual to see what they could do, and then it added that to the narrative. But, as I say, this was just window dressing. Dramatic, consequential window dressing to be sure, but window dressing nonetheless. I switched the character focus to Jukti in that last scene, but that was just a narrative device. What matters most, as I've said before, is the PCs. And while Jukti was busy freezing machine cultists and threatening Cadmus with a full body peel, Mina was quietly enacting the plan that she had prepared. The roles she made to do that were the actual mechanical parts of that scene. A quick note on the interrupt event that started the scene off. I drew Close a Thread, and the thread that I drew was Track Down the Infernal Powder. But how could that thread be closed? 
Mina hadn't yet found the huge stockpile of volatile, highly explosive powder that Jukti had amassed and stashed somewhere with the intention of blowing the great machine sky-high if the city didn't bow to her demands. Except, of course, she had. It was right here, in place and ready for use. The cultists, incapable of believing their ally could possibly wish to destroy the source of all life, had imagined the delivery of the powder into their hands to be stashed in their sacred hall was an act of supreme trust, not one of betrayal. Well, Mina always said they were pretty dumb. If you want to take a sneak peek as to how Mina and Barbican pulled off their little vanishing act, you can take a look at the mechanics in the show notes, which will give you a good idea of what happened. Otherwise, you'll just have to wait until next time, when we'll hopefully find out how she did it, where she is now, how Cadmus is going to escape his extreme exfoliation treatment, and how Mina is going to survive an all-out war between the pipe runners and the cult waged above the biggest bomb in history. Until next time. You have been listening to The Lone Adventurer, a solo RPG podcast played, written, and performed by me, Carl White. If you've enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review or telling your friends. It really is a huge help. You can find show notes at theloneadventurer.podbean.com. I include any links mentioned on that site, as well as my interactions with the Mythic GM emulator and any mechanics information. The story will continue in the next episode of Lone Adventurer. Thank you for listening.